This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Only four Jewish prisoners ever escaped the vicious SS guards, their ferocious attack dogs, rows of tall electrified fences, men on watchtowers carrying automatic weapons, and the crematoria and ovens of Auschwitz-Birkenau. But Walter Rosenberg, just 19 years old, used knowledge, cunning, and patience to do what no Jew had done before. He and Alfred Wetzler, in his early 20s, escaped, escaped from, from Auschwitz, Auschwitz and fled across open countryside, always in mortal danger. But Walter, later to become Rudolf Werber, isn't legendized like others who emerged from what became known as the Holocaust. We're more familiar with and Frank, Oscar Schindler, and Raoul Wallenberg. But his audacious breakout with Fred was a mission to warn of the hell they'd emerged from. They revealed Europe's depraved undertaking to destroy its Jews. And to warn those yet to be uprooted, Hungary's Jews, of their inevitable destruction if they got on trains bound for new lives in the East, as they were told. Even if those in power had known about the mass extermination of the Jews for some time, their vivid Auschwitz report attracted mass media and exerted some political pressure. Rudy and Fred's jailbreak and the 32-page report they compiled saved the lives of 200,000 Jews from Budapest. Lies and deception were central to the Nazi creed. Rudolf knew that all too well, that the Nazis needed order from their slave prisoners to manage the smooth-running production line of murder. From the nation that had brought us Kant, Schopenhauer, Goethe, and Bach. By the time Jews found out their fate, it was as they were being marched to the gas chamber, or even inside them with fake shower heads above them. Victims were even given a towel and a bar of soap and told they were being deloused. Rudy didn't expect Jews to take up arms against their captors, but once the awful truth was revealed, a mass panic, a stampede, would perhaps throw sand in the gears of the Nazi machine. Let them hunt deer, not lambs. But Rudy had something else which marked him out. Young and fit was one thing, but he also had an extraordinary capacity for memory 
counting and record-keeping in his head. He spent an unusually long time in Auschwitz, nearly two years, in a variety of slave jobs, and he eyewitnessed millions, mostly Jews, packed in trains like cattle from across the entirety of continental Europe, Poland, Austria, Slovakia, Holland, Italy, and Greece. Most were gassed and burnt immediately. Johnny Friedland says writing this book felt necessary now in the 2020s in a way that perhaps it may not have in any previous post-Holocaust time. This is the life story of Rudolf Werber, the escape artist, by Jonathan Friedland. Who is it exactly that becomes famous and becomes known and who gets forgotten? Werber, there's, I, I think it is very much part of the story why he's not more famous. Part of it is that he was angry uh, and it meant he pointed an accusing finger at people who I think we all would rather were not part of the accused. So I think there is a comfortable way of telling the Second World War story, which is all evil resided in Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler and the Germans and the Nazis, and everyone else was on the side of good. The Allies, the United States, Britain. That's not true. It's more complicated. It can't be. It can't be. My family's Holocaust was never hidden from me, even when I was a child. It was too much for me to imbibe. Its hard edges were bathed in loving tones by my grandma and in the bonhomie of the score of other relatives with their retro Viennese accents which so enriched my early life. Even our rabbi in Birmingham was Viennese. I remember being arrested by a rabbi with an English accent as though that made him less authentic a generation further removed from Mount Sinai. All the interview material in this podcast has been collected by me since launching this in 2018, including Ava Schloss, an Auschwitz survivor, now in her 90s. She's Anne Frank's stepsister. Johnny Gould's Jewish State is brought to you with Dangor Education. Jonathan Friedland. Welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. It's very good to be here with you, Johnny. It's lovely to have you here. And Mazel Tov on The Escape Artist, the Thank story you. of Rudolf Werber, one of only four prisoners to escape Auschwitz. And the book has absolutely everything, drama, suspense, lessons from history, but like so many Jewish stories, it's, it's just absolutely true. It's true. It's true. One of only four Jewish prisoners, we should say, because, I say that, because it was so much harder for Jews to escape. You know, there were Poles who escaped, Polish prisoners in Auschwitz, there were Soviet prisoners of war in Auschwitz, and I looked at the numbers and they escaped in their low, in the low dozens, there were escapes of them. Jews, until Rudolf Werber and Fred Wetzler, April 1944, zero. None had it got out. They were under such tight and tighter security than any of the other prisoners that it was just unimaginable. Um, you know, Poles and, and Soviet prisoners of war could can think about it. They could make plans for it. Jews, it was just not going to happen. And so there had been attempts. They'd all failed. Um, obviously, the penalty was death if you were even known to be trying, if you tried and failed. So it was... Um, 
it just adds to the sort of heroism of the achievement. But you're completely right to make the point about it being true because it's funny, at one point the publishers prepared some publicity material and I looked at it and I said, you know what, I think we have to add the word true here mm. because in all the everything else that's said, it could be understood as being a sort of thriller. And it was partly because I, under a different name, Sam Bourne, have written nine thrillers. Um, I was worried almost that people would think, okay, it's a sort of Holocaust novel. Mm-hmm. You know, they exist. You know, in going back to our day, the sort of Odessa file or whatever. Um, there are such things as Holocaust novels, even Holocaust-related thrillers. But this... Look, I hope it reads like a thriller, but it's not that. It is an absolutely faithfully true story. Now, Rudolf Werber, a remarkable 20th century man, not the name he was born with, Walter Rosenberg, one of the extraordinary figures of what became known as the Holocaust, uh, and not a name that's widely known, as others like, for example, Raoul Wallenberg, Anne Frank, and more recently, Nicholas Winton. Perhaps it should be. This is the moment. Yeah, I mean, I make the argument in the book that... This story, this name, deserves to be ranked alongside Anne Frank, Oscar Schindler, Primo Levi. You've mentioned other names, absolutely, also, that that do define our understanding of the Shoah. And I think Rudolf Weber absolutely belongs there. I mean, partly, just in sort of numbers terms, I think the Schindler Jews number around 3,000 that were saved. And I make the argument in this book that Rudolf Verber and his fellow escapee, Fred Wetzler, through their report, their, their detailed account of what was happening in Auschwitz, the first such account, and a series of diplomatic moves that came about as a result of that report, I think they are to be credited with saving 200,000 Jewish lives in Hungary, the Jews of Budapest. Now, several tens of thousands of that, 200,000, would then be killed by the Arrow Cross, the fascist uh, party militia which took over Hungary uh, after um, the dictator of Hungary had been toppled or the regent of Hungary had been toppled. But 200,000 Jews were intended for deportation from Budapest and because of the Verba Wetzler report, their lives were saved. That, to me makes Verber and Wetzler heroes, but it also means this story is just... And that's only one part of the story. Um, they deserve their place in those in that pantheon of narratives that define the Holocaust. The Hungarian lives were saved by Miklos Holti, who is back with a vengeance in Hungary. And Hungary is a great supporter of Israel within the European Union, within that group of three... Slavic countries that Israel joins in with. Poland has been sort of kicked out in disgrace temporarily. It is, it's a very, very difficult discussion. Mm. And it's a Hungarian discussion I've had with the ambassador here, mm. with Eva Schloss. Mm. Um, what do we do with Hungary? Yeah. So one thing I've discovered about talking about this book is I, I've become very, very pedantic about things. And so about even just the way words are used. Because I'm reluctant to give him the credit of saying he spared those lives because Mm. it was so self-serving. It was an act of self-preservation by him that he had, he was the regent of of Hungary, the de facto ruler. And he had allowed, turned a blind eye to, the deportation of 437,000 Jews, more than that actually, 
um, from the Hungarian provinces. Uh, so, I, so Horty had no problem with handing the Jews of Hungary over to the Nazi occupiers in that spring of 1944. A 56-day killing spree, yes. actually, that was the fastest, you know this, it yes. was the fastest period of Holocaust slaughter in the entire period. Horty doesn't bat an eyelid, you know, this is happening all around the country. Then, partly through their extraordinary escape, which we might talk about, Verba and Wetzler have got the word out through this report, 32-page document, that makes its way hand-to-hand, crossing borders, smuggled in the dead of night secretly. It gets out to different places and ultimately reaches Winston Churchill in London, Franklin Roosevelt in Washington, the Pope in Rome. And it makes it into the press, the world's press. It's only then, when the world's press now know about Auschwitz and what's happening there, thanks to Rudolf Verber and Fred Wetzel's escape, that the Pope, who's known about Auschwitz for longer than that, and Roosevelt, ditto, then write to Admiral Horty, Miklos Horty, and say, if you can continue with these deportations of Jews and, unspoken, if you're on the losing side of the war, anyone involved, including you, will be held to account. At that point, Horty and the ruling circle in Hungary panic and think we're going to be going to a war crimes trial. So let's. he then you know, pulls the lever and demands at that moment, halt the deportations, halt the deportations. It happens very quickly. Papal telegram, privately, doesn't Pope doesn't make it public. Roosevelt say, you've got to stop these deportations. And Horty does that on July the 5th, I think, in um, uh, 1944. And that moment, uh, 200,000 lives are saved. But I never want to give him the credit no. to say he saved no. lives. Verber and Vetsa saved under lives. Under duress, under pressure. Under pressure, self-serving, yeah. saving his own skin. He finally stops conniving. Let's put it that way. Yes. He stops conniving in the in the slaughter of, Euro, of Hungary's Jews. But your point about what do we do about Hungary, I mean... I know a lot of Israelis feel that Viktor Orban and Hungary is now in the pro-Israel camp, so that's all fine. But they're really not fine on this history, and they're not fine on reckoning with it and taking responsibility for it. And so, you know, it's one of those cases, and they do happen. You talk about it on your podcast a lot, where, you know, the Jewish need and the Israeli need sometimes diverge. They're not the same thing. I was pointed to the Hungarian ambassador to the UK, Ferenc Kumin, Our interview was initiated by the Israeli embassy in the UK. What I got from His Excellency was a confrontation with those nine terrible summer weeks when Jews were transported to Auschwitz at the fastest rate of their immediate murder. A reckoning for what Ambassador Kumin specifically called the Hungarian Holocaust multiple times in our interview and an extremely difficult conversation that we had. Parents didn't tell to their children. It was something... A, a little a strange mixture of the memory of the Holocaust, the fear that was still around in the families, and the communists who just wanted to, to avoid this topic. Mm-hmm. Holocaust itself wasn't discussed even in the schools. When, when I was an elementary school student, uh, probably we had something in the, in the history book, but of course we, the, 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 the entire curriculum avoided to really discuss the whole thing. I, I had to learn the, the, the true facts of the Hungarian Holocaust and what role we played in it as Hungarian authorities, Hungarian government, how it was, 
generally speaking, in my adulthood. It, it, was, it was a very, very strange realization of how I missed a very important aspect of our history. So that's why it's, it's, it's now super important for us to put it correctly in the curriculum. Let's go back to the hero of this story, Rudolf Erber, not the name he was born with, as we know, but he stuck with that name. They were given to him false papers on the run to disguise his Jewishness, but he actually kept them for the rest of his life. Mm. I did look at that name before I read it in the book and thought, I wonder where that name's from. And it's um, Dodgy Papers. Yeah. Why, why, so, not, why not Walter Rosenberg? Yeah, why not? It's, it's really interesting that. So he is born Walter Rosenberg, Walter Rosenberg, as you rightly say, in Slovakia. Uh, in 1924, um, he and you know he ends up through a series of attempted escapes. He tries to evade deportation. One reason I called the book "The Escape Artist." Uh, thunder outside, as if the the elements are, getting, here. are illustrating the story. I, I called the book "The Escape Artist" partly because he was a serial escaper. I mean, he did the most extraordinary escape from Auschwitz, which to my mind, you know, as a kid who grew up on watching The Great Escape and Escape from Colditz, I think this is more dramatic, more extraordinary, more thrilling, and above all, harder than any of those other escapes because Jews were were kept in Auschwitz in, in, in as people basically being primed to be murdered and they were not allowed to escape, you know. Um, he, he does that escape uh, and he crosses the border, crosses... Actually, before he gets to the border, yes, he and Wetzler have to cross uh, Nazi-occupied Poland with no map, no compass, no friends, across marshland, forests and mountains, where every person is a potential danger. They make it to the remnant community of the tiny remnant Jewish community of Slovakia, where they begin to set down this report. But of course, they are wanted men. There are international Gestapo warrants out for them, which have been sent to every Gestapo outpost across the Nazi empire, naming them. These are the two people you must find, Walter Rosenberg, uh, Fred Alfred Wetzler. The Slovak Jewish authorities, the leaders there, they, they weren't able to do much. But one thing they were brilliant at was getting hold of and forging impeccably fake documents. And so they, it was essential if they were to live. They had to have documents with new names um, because of the Rosenberg and Wetzel names were known. And so, yeah, they issued them both with Aryan papers suggesting that they were Slovaks of three generations standing. So if they were picked up by police, they'd just show their papers, they'd be fine. Uh, and he's given this pseudonym. Uh, Fred Wetzler becomes Josef Lanik. Um, Rudy, Fred, uh, Walter Rosenberg, rather, becomes... Uh, Rudolf Verber, and the name is fascinating because it was an existing name. It was the name of a 19th century, actually into the 20th century, Czech uh, writer, polemicist, Christian, who was a big-time nationalist anti-Semite. Right. So if you look up Rudolf Verber, you can see another Rudolf Verber in the archives, you know, um, who wrote a book in 1898 or whatever. Um, and it's interesting to me, fascinating to me, that Rudy didn't just hold on to this name for, for the months and weeks he needed to see out the end of the war, which is what Wetzler did, by the way. Wetzler dropped Josef Lanik as soon as he needed to and went back to being Fred Wetzler. Rudy kept being this new pseudonym and he liked it. And, you know, what the interviews he gave, transcripts and so on, is that he wanted to, you know, all the source material I used for the book, 
is he wanted to be, he said, free of any taint of Germany. I wanted to have no trace of that. And he did this. He talked often sarcastically. No trace of that highly civilised people. He didn't want, and he thought Rosenberg was German. It's mm. interesting because to mm. my ear it's a Jewish name, but of course it was a, it's, you know, yes. you would know with your um, uh, knowledge of all this, that he, Rosenberg... It's also a non-Jewish name. It is, yeah. So Alfred Rosenberg was himself... But they're all in Germany, of course. Nazi. The, the Rosenberg... Rosenbergs, who are non-Jewish. The, the non-Jewish Germany. Exactly. Like Alfred Rosenberg, who was a big sort of anti-Semite, yeah. um, uh, kind of almost theoretician and polemicist yeah. for the Nazis. So he wanted to be shot of that, and he liked that Rudolf Verbal had no trace of Germany. Instead, it was a very Czech name, which is interesting, because... Rudy was was a Slovak Jew, but also, but he considered himself Czechoslovak. But also, I think, and I don't really have more than just my own informed intuition about this, that I think he liked the idea of a name that was not German, but also that was free of any associations in a way with his past, meaning it doesn't have a Jewish yes. echo either. I don't think that's complete coincidence. I don't want to give the wrong impression. He was a proud and defiant and, as we'll say, as we'll get on to, I'm sure, an angry Jew. Yes. He was, you know, he was unabashedly Jewish. But I think something about a name that didn't already give that away appealed to him. Yes, that's, that's so interesting. And let's now talk about his escape because he got to calculate the weak links in the Nazi security system, being given different jobs in different places from the Jewish ramp the place where Jews were brought in by train from all over Europe to Canada, the El Dorado of Auschwitz. Indeed, I, I've spoken to an inmate of Canada, Eva Schloss, who witnessed. She said she saw the hundreds of thousands of Hungarians coming off the train in front of her while she was doing the laundry. 147 trains in nine terrible summer weeks in 1944. My mother and me were uh, chosen then to work in Canada, I don't know if you've heard that, that was a nickname, Canada being good and plenty and so on, um, where all the things which the transport took, because we were naked, we had to leave everything, and it was all taken to this place called Canada, and we had to sort out the things, uh, it was taken all back to Germany. And I saw those Hungarian Jews coming because Canada was next to that train where those people arrived. Wow. And there was very few selections. And most of those Hungarian Jews, I saw that, went straight to be guests. So, and I felt, feel sometimes guilty because of those people were killed and were collected. Then May, June, I had a better job. But of course... Somebody else would have done it if I wouldn't have done it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. But they were also in the final job before this audacious escape. They were in the right clothes. They weren't wearing those pajamas. They were ready to leave and blend it outside. 
I mean, all the details you mentioned to me, I'm, 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 you know, so glad you mentioned them all because this has been a. I consider myself someone who was quite well schooled in the subject of the Holocaust and knew a fair bit about it. But so many of these things have been new discoveries for me. I mean, I knew of Canada, so-called because Central European Jews of that period thought of Canada as this land of plenty. A lot of Slovaks and Hungarians and others went to Canada in the 30s and 40s and made their fortune, like sort of the Irish going to America or something. So Canada had that association. But this, this was the place where all the worldly goods that were taken off Jewish arrivals uh, within minutes of their uh, reaching Auschwitz, they were taken and sorted and meticulously you know, filed into categories so that they could be reused and, and make money. One of um, Rudy's great insights was that, that Auschwitz was a profit centre mm. for the SS. It was meant to be, and it was. They were ripping off everything the Jews had, including, you know, as we literally know, the hair on their heads, the gold in their teeth, everything was to turn a profit. Um, but I, it's been an education because I hadn't really appreciated the extent, for example, to which there was this permanent bureaucratic group, a kind of permanent Birkenau bureaucracy that Walter Roosevelt, Rudolf Erbe became part of. He became a pen pusher in a barracks, a registrar, where he was able, uh, as you mentioned, to wear his own clothes. And even when there was sort of, um, you know, this population that was changing every two or three hours because people would arrive and would be gassed within that kind of Mm. length of time, there was this two or three hundred Jews who were just there all the time, keeping, in some ways, the, the prison part of the camp ticking over. And they were this permanent bureaucracy. Um... So this has been, you know, major... Uh, these have been uh, discoveries I've made, either things I really had no idea about or that I knew dimly. Um, but, the, but it gets to the, the to, in terms of the escape. The important point was that Verber and Wetzler both, actually, were in the camp for an extremely unusual length of time. That The life expectancy of an Auschwitz arrival was really measured in hours because most between 95 and 90%, that sort of proportion, Rudy estimated, were sent immediately, selected, directed to the left and to the gas chambers. They were dead within an hour or two of arriving. A handful, I mean 5% to 10%, were separated to the right and they became slaves in this permanent um, concentration camp, labour camp, where they were to work. And most survived two to three months of that. But Rudy was so unusual because he was there so long and he was there in so many places. And through that, working, as you mentioned, all the different places, the Alta Judenrampe, the platform where trains would arrive in Canada, in these barrack, uh, you know, in in the bureaucracy. And over that time, he was able to see two really important things that really uh, drove the escape. The first one was he came to this amazing and to me extraordinarily penetrating insight for somebody who was just a teenager. He was 17, you know, younger than my kids. He was 17 years old and began to realise this whole process depends on one element, which is deception. That the lying to the Jews isn't some extra 
mean thing they did. It is essential. The system cannot work without it. Because these Jews are coming off these trains in relatively orderly fashion because they've been lied to. Because they've been told they're being resettled in the East. New lives in the East. And that's why they got on the trains in the first place. That's why they're getting off them and agreeing to be ordered into columns. Because they don't realise they're here to be murdered. And he thought if they did know that, they would not necessarily rebel. He didn't have some unrealistic idea that they would take up arms or something. But he thought they would panic. Mm. They might stampede. There would be chaos. And he knew enough of the Nazi method to know that the Nazi method could not cope with thousands of people panicking and stampeding. Mm. It needed Mm. order. And that's why they were lied to. So he realised the only way to stop this killing machine from functioning is to shatter that wall of deception, the wall of lies. In my extended family is a remarkable man in his late 90s, Stanley Fisher, a British Jewish soldier among the first to witness the liberation of Bergen-Belsen. When we heard about Belsen, we thought it was like a prisoner of war camp. When... I saw, or what I saw, was horrific. I saw walking skeletons, because at that time that I got there, which was the end of April, beginning of May, and uh, they were beginning to move the inmates out. And I had nightmares for years after that. And so he thought somebody has got to escape and tell the Jews, do not get on those trains because if you do, this is what's waiting for you. And even though you're under gunpoint, run, stampede, call, create chaos, throw sand in the gears of the Nazi machine. Mm-hmm. That was his great insight. But the other crucial thing was that in that period of time, he saw the Nazi methods so up close mm-hmm. that he was able, as you said, to spot a gap in their defences, not a not a physical gap, but a gap. Indeed, you um, describe one mother and her daughter who looked like a quite well-to-do lady and she was whispered at by uh, an inmate, get, get that uh, very odd man away from me. And the Nazi officer said, I'm so sorry, madam, and uh, took the guy behind the, uh, the shed and uh, killed the man immediately and then sent her with her children straight to the gas chambers as though she was complaining to, you know, the middle manager of a Prague department store uh, it's 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 so graphic in places and uh, you know i've been told these stories since i was a child at first hand by my uh, by my grandmother and indeed uh, my uh, great great aunt ruth levenberg had uh, a stamp and i remember in the old house in sutton coldfield when i was aged 5 she lifted up her arm to show me the number i had no idea it looked like biro and there were a few numbers on there, and my grandma said, Shisha, don't show them this, don't show them this. And Ruth said, no, uh, he must see this. I had absolutely no idea what it was about, but I do remember the uh, the determined way that she wanted me to know what this was, and my grandma wanted me protected from it. And I wanted to say, yes, I do, I want to know. I didn't, you know, I didn't really know what it was, but it was not hidden from me. From, from the word go and I have to say that until I got older I was slightly desensitised to it mm. um, because Birmingham even in the 1970s was centuries away from where she came from yeah. and how she was and indeed Rudolf was so scientifically intelligent and had this capacity for memory and analysis 
He spotted a Polish Jewish waiter. Let, let it, me. Yeah, I mean, I should, you tell that story. I, well, I should tell the story just because it, it, it's it's so incredible and it comes out of something. It was like a postcode. The numbers were like a postcode. That's right. I mean, once he had decided to shatter the wall of ignorance, as he thought of it, or sort of yes, tear down the veil down. of ignorance. Once he decided that somebody's got to do that, he realised, okay, you've got to. And again, an amazingly mature insight. He thought, therefore, you have to gather the evidence because the only way people are going to believe this is if you have an absolutely rigorous, factual account of what's happened. And so he was on that ramp, on that platform, unloading every transport, Jews as they arrived in these cattle trucks, and getting them off and getting their bags off. That was his job for 10 months straight. And each transport, he would count the number of cattle trucks. He would work out an estimate of how many people per cattle truck. He had an amazing ability to count, to assess numbers. Uh, and he would then remember the point of origin of that transport, the numbers of on, on board, the proportion who were sent for gas and who were kept in the uh, labour camp. And then he would memorise it by reference to um, the uh, numbers of those handful who were selected to live. Because they were, as you've just been saying, given these numbers that were tattooed on their forearms or on their tunics, those numbers were part of, they were like serial numbers that related to the transport they were on. And he had did it like almost like a child's memory game. You know, that I went mm. to market and I took string of sausages a child's toy and a lemon and then the next day you add a string of sausages a child's toy a lemon and a gentleman's hat and you add an element that's how he that was his method he would add he would say to himself everything he already knew every transport and then add the latest one and and remember their serial numbers which were corresponded to those tattoos this was he explained to people when he actually testified, when he gave the report, the men who took the evidence from him in Slovakia, in Zilina in Slovakia, they've written down, it's in later testimony, they could not believe this man's memory. And they tested it and tested it again to the point where they would say, all right then, um, what about, they would name somebody specific in Slovakia. They would say Esther Klein was from this town in Slovakia. And he would say, um, that he knew of, he, you know, that transport, they would say a date, and he would say, yes, she was on it, and it, so was also this name and that name, and it left on the 23rd of September, and it came, and they would they had their own records of when people had left Slovakia, so they could check against those records, and they would look at each other astonished. He's right. That is the transport Esther was on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he was, if, he, if you gave him the date, he could tell you the number. If you gave him the number, he could tell you the date, you know. Um, and they said afterwards he had the most wonderful memory. Our later historians have debated this and said, can it really be true that he memorised this whole thing? Maybe there were some papers that he and Fred Wetzler smuggled out and perhaps they lost them on the way or something, or half of them. And Verbal always said emphatically, it is not true, there were no papers. Yeah. And he, sw you know, he came back to it again and again. He said, it was only in my head. And some people have, have, have sort of, you know, stroked their chin sceptically about this. Yeah. Mm, really? Okay, what settled that for me was, first of all, this testimony from the man who took down the evidence who said, I've never, more or less, you know, 
I've never seen in memory like this. But this other story, which was um, that years later, in the 1970s, Rudy is in Manhattan uh, in a restaurant. It's an outdoor restaurant. It's a hot summer's day. The waiter is in shirt sleeves. He's rolled up his sleeves. And Rudy spots that this waiter, and this would have happened, the sort of thing that happened yeah. in the 70s. We yeah. know this. You would see it quite often. Yeah. He sees the waiter has the bluey ink tattoo on his arm. Now, mo- you, most people would think, ah, oh, that means you're an Auschwitz. No. He says to him, 15th of May, 1943, Benjin, Poland. Mm. And the waiter looks at him and pales. How do you know that? And he said, I recognised your number. And even other survivors couldn't work out from a number, but Rudy could. I... Um, that's it. That story is in the book. To me, it was a story that Martin Gilbert included um, in one of his books. To me, it's sort of cor- such corroborating evidence. I must tell you, because this has happened since the book, so I can let you in on something that's happened since the book. When word of the book was published, and, uh, or, or, or there was like a tra- uh, the equivalent of like a trailer in The Guardian or something, saying I was going to do a live event about the book, I got an email from a man called Chris Arden, who said... I see you've written something about Rudolf Verber. I'm looking forward to reading it. It hasn't come out yet. Um, I must tell you, I knew Dr. Verber when, in, when he was working in the laboratory in Carl Schulten, Surrey in the 1960s. Um, uh, I had just done my A-levels. I was the you know, very low-level employee in this laboratory. And one day I was wrestling with a scientific problem and I mentioned this problem to Dr. Verber. And Dr. Verber said to me, I think the article you want to read is, and he said the title, it was published in, he said the year, it's in volume X, it's page 123, and it's paragraph 3. And young Chris Arden finds the obscure scientific journal and goes through the volumes and finds the chapter and finds the page and finds the paragraph, and exactly the thing he was looking for was there. Now, Chris Arden, who I've now met, he came to a book festival event I did two weeks ago. Wow. He said to me, he wrote that to me when he had no idea that I had talked about the issue of Rudy's memory, that it was a point of debate. He just volunteered this thing. So to me, it's cast iron proof that this man had the most unusual memory. I toyed with calling the book The Memory Man because... He, he had two almost Victorian freak show talents. Yes. He was an escape artist and he was the memory man. He could do both. That was, that's incredible. And what you've also done in this book, there's a number of things that you, you've tackled. And one of them is the terrible, terrible misuse of the word capo, which is being used amongst Jewish people on Facebook and uh, social media. It's a terrible, terrible word. And you have reclaimed that word capo to what it really meant in the book. And, you know, you, you tell the story very graphically, live inmates carrying dead bodies on their shoulders with their heads bobbing as they walked, and the capo collaborators who beat their fellow Jews just to try and save themselves. And you spotted uh, Rudolf Ferber in that epic Shoah movie, that nine and a half hour epic, which I heard the uh, Radio 4 version of it, the uh, the 1986 viewing of it in Jerusalem, the stories around it. It's a, it's a lovely documentary. And he's chuckling or laughing his way through the interview. And, um, you know, I, 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 would you prefer me to cry about this? But Verba had this capacity to maybe 
detach himself from the horror by using the analysis of the situation in terms of his numbers so that it was part of the commentary in his mind to memorise the horrors and catalogue them and get some kind of joy out of the collection of data. This is his specialised subject, yeah. more than more than anyone in the whole world. Yes. A few people, you know, have asked a kind of religious question about, do I think in some strange way this was divine intervention, that the one person yes. who had this freakish That's ability... crossed my mind as well. I mean, how could, he was the, both the memory man and the escape artist. How did it happen to be both? There could have been someone who was physically amazingly courageous and adept and he escaped but had no facts in his head or you could have had some amazing statistical number cruncher wonk who memorized everything but didn't have the physical wherewithal to cross marshlands and forests for 11 days in 19 he was 19 by the time he did it in 19 year old rudolf verber somehow say these religious people the almighty found the messenger who could do it, you know. Yes, and who uh, could survive as well. And who could survive, I mean, everything. But I'm very struck by your thought about, about it almost as a coping mechanism. I think yes. that's very interesting. And I think that it fits, I think, with what happened with him, which is, there was, this isn't in his own writings, by the way, but Fred Wetzler, who remained behind the Iron Curtain in Czechoslovakia and therefore is a much more obscure figure, yes. spoke much less. He said that when he first encountered then Walter Rosenberg, in the camp, he saw someone who was basically losing his mind. I mean, that was broken, was having a nervous breakdown, is what he thought. And not only he thought it, other people in the camp were thinking, this young man has seen too much, he's breaking. And there were, there were real worries almost for his sanity. I think, putting that together with other things, I think somehow it was the decision to not just see this horror, but to see it for a purpose, mm. to see it for the purpose of telling the world, I think that's what became his coping mechanism. It was the only way to ha handle it. So he was seeing people come taken to their deaths, and instead of really seeing that and thinking, grieving for the mother separated from her child or the father separated from his daughter, what, she, what he saw instead was, okay, 3,217 people, I must remember that, that's the one from Grodno, I'll remember the name. And it somehow gave him a sense of purpose that he was determined to be a witness. And I think that really uh, was a kind of survival strategy yes. in a way for him. Indeed, you said something about in the book, you say, uh, you know, the minute he got out there, he unexpectedly blurted out to a peasant that uh, oh, I've just come from Auschwitz. And uh, Fred said, what are you doing, man? And he said, well, I'm here. We're here to tell the story, aren't we? So this was, this was his his mission. Indeed, we're talking about the pure chance of who becomes infamous from the Holocaust. And my cousin, Professor Karl Ehrlich, read I Cannot Forgive, and he's looking forward to reading your book. And, you know, when you think about uh, Nicholas Winton, I mean, he got famous because Esther Ranson did that lovely show where all the people stood up around him and uh, he became a star at the end of his life, um, which which is which is the, the British Schindler, which was his uh, his... His monocle as well. And it's one of the most moving bits of TV. It's, though, it's, it's beautiful. If they hadn't been rescued and brought over to England, these children would have been killed by the Nazis. But in fact, they were saved by an English stockbroker called Nicholas Winton. 
In all, Nicholas Winton and the committees who helped him managed to save 664 children. This is his scrapbook. There are all kinds of fascinating pictures in it. But back here, you will see, is the list of all the children and the foster families who took them in. This is Vera Diamant when she was 10. Now she's Vera Gissing. Until we told her this week, she had no idea that Nicholas Winton had in fact arranged her rescue. But we did find her name, Vera Diamant, as she was then, on his list. Vera Gissing is with us here tonight. Hello, Vera. And uh, I should tell you that you are actually sitting next to N Nicholas Winton. <laughs> we asked as many as possible of these grown-up children to get in touch with us, so they'd have the chance to thank Mr Winton personally. Can I ask, is there anyone in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton. If so, could you stand up, please? Mr Winton, would you like to turn round? You all had the chance to meet these people properly after the programme. In the meantime, Mr Winton, on behalf of all of them, thank you very much indeed. A bit like Oscar Schindler, a bit like the Steven Spielberg film, where everyone puts a stone on his grave and all the survivors, all the, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, etc. I, by the way, try to have a nod to that. In yes. The, I don't want to give away how I've written the very closing of the book. But that notion of generations, when you save 200,000 lives, yes. and yes, we know the ultimate total was fewer because the Arrow Cross later killed some of those Jews of Budapest who otherwise would have been saved. But when you save that order of magnitude, then you have to think it's then their children, yes. then their grandchildren, then their great-grandchildren. And so I just, uh, you know, there's, they, I just picked one uh, who was saved by Rudolf Erber's testimony and whose grandchildren and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are alive now. And you think that's just one of those 200,000. So there's all these lives, all these stories, all this potential that happens when you save one person. And if you save 200,000, it is the most colossal achievement. A colossal gift to the world. Filmmaker Malcolm Green, who made the Holocaust-themed movie, Edek. It's really interesting when you talk about your mum's parents, because literally weeks before, I was in Warsaw. I was at a film talk. I had a previous film um, about a Holocaust survivor and a hip-hop artist, and it was being screened there at a festival. And my cab driver was an Indian guy, young Indian guy, and he didn't realise who I was, you know, that I was Jewish. And he was talking about, we're going through Warsaw. And he said, do you know what happened in Warsaw, the Warsaw guy? And I, I kind of, you know, acted a bit naive and said, tell me. And he started talking about the Holocaust. And he said to me, he said, you know, six million Jews died in the Holocaust. But also the world, every single one of us has suffered. I said, really, how? And he said, think about the cures that would have happened. Think about the diseases we still have. Think about the children who still die. Think about the people who still live in poverty. Think about cancer that's still here. He said, it would have all been cured. We wiped out, and he was talking, we as the world, we wiped out ourselves as well. And I'd never heard 
the Holocaust described in that universal global sense before from a guy who was an Indian cab driver and it was incredibly moving and very emotional. The fact that he was saying to cut off that good for mankind was inhuman in itself and I found that really powerful. And when you have time, scroll back for Douglas Murray on his bestseller, The War on the West. The terrifying nature of anti-Semitism is the way in which it shapeshifts. It goes from right to left. It can attack Jews for being too well off and for being too poor. It can attack them for being too assimilated and not and for not trying to assimilate. The Jews will get it from every direction. And, and as I always say, anyone who says as occasionally various Labour politicians trying to put Jeremy Corbyn into power would say, they would say things like, we are, we are certainly going to stamp out anti-Semitism, we're going to end anti-Semitism. They'd make these sorts of claims and I would always say anyone who says such a thing must know nothing about anti-Semitism. I mean, you must know nothing about it if you could make such a facile statement. End anti-Semitism? I don't think so. Uh, it is it is far too um, perennial and, and entrenched. Uh, you can keep it down, but you'll never you'll never destroy it once and for all. This autobiography is even his wife hadn't read it, and um, she was told about it not by him. She read it at the library. Yes, yeah, so, so we should he, talk about that. He's yeah. a, he's a I mean, he, his whole life was a great trauma well after the Holocaust, the habits which enabled him to survive and stay alive. They stayed with him, always keeping his valuables on his possession, on his person. He had a temper which disrupted his closest and dearest relationships. It's true. And that, I think this is the thing that you, you mentioned before that I think is so worth following up is, is who is it exactly that becomes famous and um, and becomes uh, known and who gets forgotten to me it's it's um you know somebody said that this they thought this was the jewish hamilton this book mm. because the hamilton is who who gets remembered and who lives and dies and yes. tells your story and all that uh and that the uh, hamilton was done the unknown founding father and suddenly a musical happens and he, now he's the best known yes. of all of them and verber there's I, I think it is very much part of the story why he's not more famous Part of it is that he was angry, as you've said, uh, and that was difficult in two ways. The first is it meant he pointed an accusing finger at people who I think we all would rather were not part of the accused. So I think there is a comfortable way of telling the Second World War story, which is all evil resided in Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler and the Germans and the Nazis. And everyone else was on the side of good, you know, and meaning the uh, the Allies, the United States, Britain, uh, everybody else. Now, that's not true. It's more complicated. It than can't that. be. It can't be. And you start with the, all the different collaborators with the Nazis. Holocaust not possible unless Latvians and Ukrainians and Estonians. The European and, Holocaust yes. is what I have called it throughout these episodes. Good. I mean, that's correct and it's right. And, you know, as it happens, you and I are talking on a day when I have interviewed a survivor of the Holocaust who was in the Riga ghetto. And he told me today that, you know, the people who were guarding it, penning him in as an 11 year old boy, were Latvians, given uniforms, but they were not Germans. So 
that's the first thing. But even there's a degree of culpability of, or, you know, um, maybe that's too strong a word, but there, there, is a, there are all these moral grey areas. Washington and London knew of the Holocaust. They were, they were urged to bomb the railway tracks to Auschwitz. Yes. They didn't do it. Big debate about what difference that would have made and why exactly, but let's just have that sitting there. And then most controversially of all in this book um, is the Jewish leadership in Hungary who Rudy, they were his main target audience. Rudolf Verber wanted the report to get into the hands of the Hungarian Jews because he wanted them to have it in black and white yes. so they would know if you can anyway not get on that train, don't get on that train. That was his target. Um, Reju Kastner, uh, later on Rudolf Kastner, de facto leader of the Hungarian Jewish community, did not pass on the word that Fred and Rudy had done so much to get out. Now, we can have big debates about why exactly they didn't do it. And there are defenders who will say he didn't do it because it would have disrupted negotiations, that he was having secret talks, Kastner was having with the Nazis. We can, you know, you can litigate that. It's a live issue in Israel. Rudolf Kastner's granddaughter, Merav Michaeli, is the leader now of Israel's Labour Party. This is, re, you know, it's in the present. It's not yet the past. But the fact, I don't think even Kastner's defenders claim that he passed on the Verbovetzer report. He didn't. And that is what Rudy could not forgive. You refer to his autobiography. That's why, at least according to his first wife, that's why it's called I Cannot Forgive. Yes. That he meant those people who had his report and did not pass it on yes. to those who needed to hear it. It's a very good book, by the way, this I Cannot Forgive. He wrote it with a Fleet Street journalist by the name of Alan Bestick, father of Richard Bestick, of, for, of formerly of Sky News, all these connections. Um, it's a good book, uh, but it's an angry book. He's yes. angry. And he that anger... Not only did it not dissipate, it deepened yes. uh, as the years went by and as he found and that's out more. probably why he didn't become famous. Yes. It there is. has to be some chink of light of hope. Now, there was I'm, so much I'm light. I was arrested by my grandma's joy in life. You know, she looked at grainy pictures um, of concentration camps. Any, any television that was on, she used to squint her eyes looking for her, her parents and then she used to occasionally say, my poor mama. And then she would touch my hand as though I was the constellation. I'm the next generation. She was full of joy after all that. Here's a bit of sunshine from my own grandma, Olga Pasana, Holocaust survivor who arrived in England in September 1938. She describes a nervous breakdown as being very upset, having to say goodbye to her parents. Never to see them again, they were exterminated at Chelmno being frisked by the SS as she attempts to cross the Austrian border to flee Nazi Vienna, and how her instinct to trust the right people helped save her from being robbed. I was lucky to come to England on a, on a domestic permit. I went first from Vienna to Budapest. Mm-hmm. And there I stayed for, I think, uh, three weeks. And then from there... Uh, on the plane to Prague for one day, from there to, to England. I was ill then, you know, to this upsetting, mm. you know. But, but I must tell you a little story. My parents was on the, on the train in Vienna when I went, you see. And we was not allowed to take anything. And, but I had my case, you see. 
and a bit of jewelry, you know, my hand is a bit of jewelry. And the parents was very upset, and I was very upset. And I went from there to Vienna. And Mama put me in a, when I was 29, you know, in an in, in a department where a couple was a very nice mm -hmm. couple. I found it out afterwards, it was a very nice couple, yeah. you know. But I had no, I was very upset, you yeah. know, but I know I can't come back more. But in any way, and before we came to the border, there, um, what do you call them? Um, what ticket I, inspector. Ticket inspector came and had to see my passport. And he said, don't worry, don't worry, lady, you know. Don't worry, I'm right, you will be back again. We'll be back again one day. Oh, right, yeah. You see. <laughs> but in any way, well, I was afraid, you know, something will happen, but on the border they can send me back or something. Yeah, yeah. But in any way, this couple said, don't worry about us. We will, we will do anything to you. We will do nothing to you. Mm -hmm. Let me have all your belongings, you know, the jewelry and stuff, or money. Mm -hmm. I give it you when we're over the border. I was a bit worried but why why would you why would you want to give it them well they would take it possibly the ss men would come oh, on the jewish well they would well, you know and i think i was so upset i think i don't know but in any way i gave them what i had, I had not a lot mm. but a little bit and they was very very nice and when we took the border you know mm. the ss men came and looked everywhere and they gave it me back, yeah. And I thank him. But in any way, they asked me where I go in. And I said, I go to France also. And I wrote them then when I was there, a thank letter. And I wrote them, I'm in hospital. I was with a breakdown. And they came to see me. Oh, really? Very, very, very nice. nice. Yeah. But I think this was Yugoslav people yeah. or something. What so have day. you lost contact with them now? Yeah. Yeah, immediately. I never, I never yeah. saw them again. Yeah, okay. But they say to me, we have. They haven't talked here a lot with me. Only after the border, yeah. when we have been on the. But this was a time where Hungary was still part of Austria. But yeah, but Hitler wasn't there yet, or Russia wasn't there. But in any way, it was very nice. And from yeah, this was nice. And then I stayed in Budapest, and then in. And then I came to London, and the captain said, we have to go very high up. I think it was September. I can't tell you the date. And this was just the time when Hitler invited Czechoslovakia. And the captain said, we have to go very high, where it's danger zone, you know. And I think, I don't know, I cried, I don't know, I was very upset. And I fall asleep. And in London, a friend of ours, you know, picked me up. But before I was, when I woke up, I was so ill, so sick to yeah. help me, you know, to come down. But in any way, everything turned out all right afterwards. What year did she get she out of came, She came in September 38, and my grandfather came in April 39. So they got out in time. Right at the end. Yeah. I mean, he went through Kristallnacht. In Vienna, and Eichmann came into his shop because he, before Hungary, his job was to get the Viennese Jews out as well. And he said, "You see this guy here?" And he was an area in a local Austrian. That it's his business now, his typewriter mechanics business, his shop, which is, by the way, where the site of OPEC is today. 
by the Danube out and that was the end of his wow. middle class stewardship of his own business in Vienna but he must have known yeah. that it was over long before that so you, this is absolutely the point that the those angry accusations that Rudy would hurl at his audience when he was speaking he wouldn't give them the comforting message that the only bad guys in this story are Adolf Hitler and Adolf Eichmann he would start pointing the finger to the point where he became this unpredictable um, unreliable as they saw it um, guest because you didn't know what he was going to start saying and what he was going to start pointing the finger at and so even in his own home Jewish community he lived in his, the last decades in Vancouver in Canada for most of that time even when they had a Holocaust memorial event they didn't invite him mm. I mean there they had the ultimate survivor not just a survivor, but somebody who had borne witness to the entire thing, who could yes. tell you more than almost anybody. Yes. And there he would, you know, the University of British Columbia, his own university, would have an event every year, a sort of Shoah seminar for um, high school students, and they wouldn't invite Rudy to speak. They thought, I, I, they can't be sure he won't start with the accusations and the rage. Right. And I think there's a couple of interesting things in that. The main one being, I think it goes to these expectations we have of Holocaust survivors, which is that they be healing, gentle, wise, sweet elderly people who tell us that the that they have seen something awful, but it's okay because the world is wonderful. And if you listen to the sort of grammar of those interviews when they're on the radio or television, there's a particular sort of format almost the interviewer is always wonderfully polite and deferential, but comes out sort of morally uplifted, as yes. if they've sat with the Dalai yes. Lama or something. And I think that's really unfair that we yeah. put that on Holocaust survivors. They should be. It's now too late, really, to be for me to be saying this because most are gone. But the, the world did not allow Rudolf Werber to be angry. Yes. And my word, how he had enough to be angry yes, about. He did. There are a few angry writers out there in our generation. For example, Tuvia Tannenbaum right. is super angry and he attacks Jews for their complacency. Um, that is a theme of his book, the, uh, the, the book about uh, yeah. Britain, the, the taming of the Jew, and confronting Irish Catholics in their pub with the language. And he was telling me about the capos of Vienna, etc. He was telling me about this disgrace and it was extremely difficult to listen to because I tallied it with my own grandma's yeah. eyewitness evidence of that going yeah, on yeah. Johnny Ambassador Ron Dermer described the Holocaust as a blinding light which obscured Jewish suffering in the centuries before the Holocaust has distorted the Jews view of their own history certainly the world's view of Jewish history because it blocks out all the anti-Semitism that came before. The Holocaust is like a blinding sun, and you have all these, these, all these stars of anti-Semitism. You just don't see it because the sun is blinding. They're all there, the stars go out during the day. You just can't see them. Because of Hitler and the Holocaust, people forget the history of the Jews. And the history of the Jews is a history of about 25 centuries of anti-Semitism. Go back... And, you know, it used to be in antiquity to be a great scholar. You have to sit in the Library of Alexandria for a couple of decades and read all the scrolls. Now you just have to Google it. I want you to look, I want you to pick a century tonight, any century, 5th century, 8th century, 11th century, 15th century. 
and look at the anti-Semitic attacks against Jews. And it will shock you. Because the Holocaust is such a seismic event. You know, a third of the Jewish people, six million, are murdered. It's, it's hard for people to get their minds around it. I used to say in the United States when I was ambassador, if you're trying to understand that, imagine over 100 million Americans being murdered. And if you can't wrap your mind around it, imagine a 9-11 every day for a century, because that's what the Holocaust did for, to the Jewish people. So in Britain, it's probably about 22 million Britons being murdered. And any comparison with what we're seeing in Russia and Ukraine, as harsh as it is in the horrific war, it's not on the same planet as the Holocaust. In Bobby Yar, in two days, 33,000 Jews were killed, were shot and thrown into pits. In May 1944 in Auschwitz, 10,000 Jews were being murdered systematically every day. It's not the Holocaust. And people have to stop using this language because it diminishes and demeans mm -hmm. what happened, which was so unique, the systematic attempt to annihilate each and every Jew and target them for destruction. Mm -hmm. But we've had centuries of anti-Semitism that came before it. You know, everyone knows the name of Zelensky. He's now a Ukrainian hero, a Jewish national hero of Ukraine. The last Ukrainian national hero is a guy named Khmelnytsky. You raise your hand if you know who Khmelnytsky was. That's pretty good. You got about four people here who know who was. Khmelnytsky was a Ukrainian Cossack who killed somewhere between 150 and 300,000 Jews in the middle of the 17th century. He's lost to history because of Hitler. No one even remembers that anymore. And you have these anti-Semites that pop out and kill tens of thousands of Jews, sometime in a day, sometimes in a, in a month. It's a very, very harsh history, and we've forgotten it. But as you show, brutal, deathly anti-Semitism continued in Czechoslovakia in the 50s under the guise of communism. 11 Jews hanged for deviation from communism, Zionism, terrible crime, and Titoism. A bit of Yugoslavian action there. And he ended up trying to escape Czechoslovakia just as he did Auschwitz. He really is the escape artist, Rudolf Verber. He, he was the serial yeah. escaper. I mean, that's what, why the title came to me and why I kind of... Um, was so drawn in some ways to the story because it did, doesn't just end with this amazing escape from Auschwitz-Birkenau. He kept doing it and he escaped his home country, his adopted country, the country after that. He escaped his marriage. He escaped his own name. Yeah. You know, he could not... He was this... I think until the last decades of his life, he settled and had a very happy second marriage with... Um, with the woman who is now his widow, Robin Verber, who was a wonderful help to me in writing this book. She and I had long, long hours of interviews for this book. So he, it's not as if he remained permanently restless, but he was this escapologist. Mm. And um, that is... Well, I think there's something very Jewish in that too, actually. Yeah. But it's interesting your Ron Derma point, and it's true that people uh, somehow think these things came out of a clear blue sky and... 1939 or 1941 no absolutely not as you know as you know it's the product of hundreds of years hundreds of years david bolkova author of the biography of bella gutman a hungarian jew who lost his entire family but survived the hungarian holocaust in hiding to become a twice european cup winning football coach with portuguese giants benfica says the calamity which befell us was so massive 
that we as Jews have completely forgotten who we actually are. Jews often make jokes uh, that we make better accountants and lawyers uh, than we do sports players. This joke is very deeply embedded in, in Jewish culture. For example, in the, in the, in the film Airplane in 1980, uh, the great American comedy, an elderly Jewish woman puts her hand up. Air hostess comes over and the woman says to the air hostess, have you got anything very light to read? The air hostess hands her this tiny leaflet and you can see the headline, uh, Famous Jewish Sporting Heroes. And I used to find these jokes amusing, like many Jews do, and now I find them upsetting because what they show is that the Holocaust didn't just account for the murder of six million Jews, but it also devastated Jewish collective memory to the extent that we don't even know who we were. And it's important to remember, and again, you know, when you are bombarded, as we have been in the subsequent generations, that the Holocaust happened and there were pogroms beforehand, not just in our continental Europe, but right across the Mizrahi world. We think of the Farhud in, you know, Shavuos in 1941 in Iraq, that this went on for centuries and that the uh, the concentration camps were an entirely new killing machine. We, we take it for granted that this was sort of how it was. This is how Jews were always killed. Well, they, they weren't, and this was an entirely new thing. Johnny, it's, it's a beautiful book. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, read the book because you will see in graphic detail the mechanics of the actual escape itself to actually go into various parts of the camp, uh, the tension of maybe they might be caught, maybe they might just read the book because it's a tremendous amount of detail, the, the agony of being there hiding for so long. It, it's suspenseful, it is, it's agonising, especially if you, know, you think that you are also that person that it could actually have possibly happened to you just by deign of the time of your birth. Uh, Johnny, where does this book sit in your writing career? Is this the sort of, you couldn't have written this when you were 35, maybe? I mean, is it, is it now in your sort of, uh, in your mature period? Um, I think that's an interesting you know, question. Is this, is this the culmination of where it's at in terms of the, the tomb of Jewish writing for you? That's so interesting. I, I, I think there's something in that that I wouldn't have done it, couldn't have done it, wouldn't have done it earlier. That's, uh, that rings true to me because... Well, there's one way in which that's true, which is in particularly, which is that um, it does draw on or benefit, I think, from the fact that I have written nine novels, thrillers, before this, sat under the name Sam Bourne. And I think I did learn through that process about pacing and sort of suspense. And, and so a lot of people have said to me they're very surprised by the idea that this is not one of those sort of history books where you have to you know, you slightly eat your greens, you know, where you have to, it's work. It's not that. It mustn't it, be homework, as Douglas told me in the last episode. It's got to feel like it's a sort of, well, people have said it's unputdownable as if it's like a thriller. Yeah. And, and, and weirdly, people have been saying that they sort of don't know, they've got, they're turning the page what happens next. So even though they know the title, when you're reading it, you don't know how they're going to do it and how they'll pull it off. Um, so that I think I couldn't have done it in that way. But I think in a way, underneath your, underneath your question is a deeper point, which is, what would I have been ready to tackle the Holocaust as a subject when I was younger? And I think I definitely would not. Mm. And the other thing I think about, and going back to something you said before about how being desensitised to it, 
See, I think we've known each other a long time. If 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 I contemplated writing this say around 1998, 1999, I think I would have thought there's been enough about the Holocaust. Mm. Everyone knows about that. We don't need to keep going on about it. I wrote a column after the David Irving trial where I said, this is so important to have done this. Thank the heavens above for the verdict that said yes. Don, uh, David Irving is not a historian. The judge's words, he is a pro-Nazi polemicist, not a historian. He should never be described as a historian, by the way. I'm quite... Mm-hmm. Uh, because the court has found he's not. He yes. doctors evidence and so on. And I said, but that's great. We've got this verdict. Now it's time to close the book on this subject. Jews need to talk about the future. They need to talk about life, not death. We need to talk about, um, uh, you know, the next century rather than the last one. This was around 2000. The trial was in 2000. Mm. And I think at the time I really felt that because everybody you I would encounter knew plenty. It was established. And I didn't want that to be the only thing people knew about Jews. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing Irving said in the trial that slightly stuck to me is he said, the Holocaust is the only interesting thing that's ever happened to the Jews. You know, and it was, it was such an ugly thing to say. Mm. But it, obviously on some level it got under my skin because I remember thinking, okay, we now must talk about Jewish life and culture. And I wrote a book a few years later about three members of my own family called Jacob's Gift. Yes. And th- three different individual stories from the Jewish 20th century. But I, in a way, took some... Sp- satisfaction obviously personally but also in terms of the book that none of these were holocaust stories there was plenty to say about the battle of cable street in london there was the early mandatory palestine that my great uncle was involved in there was the growing up in a first generation in israel like my mother did and i thought good there's plenty that's uh, to tell that isn't the holocaust so in my 30s i think i wouldn't have thought it was necessary but what you said about desensitized is really right. I have now, 20 years on, I now see that actually we think we know about this and we think other people know about it, but we don't. They, they don't. They don't. And you know those poll surveys that come out, you know, often from America, but you know, this poll showing degree of ignorance. And the other thing I've realized is even the people who would pass that test, who would say, yes, Auschwitz was a terrible concentration camp, Nazis, Jews were killed. They wouldn't know anything beyond, and I've been really struck by how uh, how many people admit this, they know trains, Jews came off the trains, they were gassed. That sort of it. The whole, the depth of the memory comes from knowing how that happened, who was involved, what it entailed, the levels of cruelty, denial, official blindness, willful blindness, you have to really sort of draw kind of the big moral conclusions from this episode. You need to know much more than the sort of thumbnail sketch, yes. which I now worry that people have. And therefore, um, I actually, on some level, think the book felt necessary to me mm-hmm. in 2022 in a way that I think in 2002, I'm not sure I would have seen the necessity. So. In all kinds of ways, I think now is yeah. the time when I'm capable of doing it. It's like it's like the, the Jewish idea of um, things become apparent in different generations. It's a, a permanent um, rolling ball where some ideas are in darkness in certain centuries and then they emerge as the ball moves into light. And, and we've lived um, 55 years 
and my word, the world has changed and continues to evolve as we live. Uh, Johnny, we've known each other, uh, we go back a long way. This is a real pleasure, this podcast, because it's not as if I'm picking up the phone or or Zooming up someone I met uh, via a mutual email in Washington or whatever. (laughs) We've known each other 41 years, we've laughed together, we've cried together, we've we've even prayed together, we remain friends because we are exactly the same in my book. Uh, Piffling little differences about Israel and politics, and I say piffling because compared to the top line things, that we have in common, all those things are utterly meaningless. We're both, um, you know, fathers of Jewish children, Jewish wives. Hmm. Um, the need to bring our kids up in uh, the Jewish Emilia and just all the Israel, everything, all sorts of other stuff. The rest, the rest of our entire differences are absolutely meaningless to me, tiny. And yeah, I mean it as well. And uh, you know, you came to my dad's shiver, and you, the Lavoie came to yours, and you know, it's just all these things. And came to your chuppah and you, you know it's just it's just all it's all very we watch the world cup finals together well, and the now last, day of, the heart last of the day of the season emotionally and, and i have to say you know your dear late father michael i think of him a lot and you know the shows on bbc london and my appearances on his show at lbc as the sports reader during the commercial break the news and the news and sports junction at half past the hour <laughs> you don't have to be jewish michael friedland point pointing through the window at john mindlin the engineer um and we won't have Fiddle on the Roof as the theme tune. We'll think of something else. Um, and, um, <laughs> you know... Um, well, it still absolutely works as a theme tune. Well, it, it does. Although, I mean, you know, I, I put a heavy metal hatikva in as I thought that was slightly more yes. appropriate for now. That's, although I have moved it on a bit. I've okay. taken the, the anthem away now. Um, are the, uh, these shows of my late father, Michael Frieden, are available on BBC Sounds They're now. epic. They're absolutely and vital. It, it's a great thing to listen to every now and again because, yeah, you're right about the Fiddle on the Roof. Sig tune, as he always called it. Um, but <laughs> that would have been in the running order. That's what it would have been called in the running order. Sig tune. It would, and it was very much of its time. But although, by the way, I, re- I always remember this: that his program launched in seventy-one, and the Fiddler on the Roof movie came out in seventy-one. So that was very cutting edge at the time. Yes, yes, now yes. we think of it as old-fashioned, sort of, um, you know, slightly nostalgia. I mean, it was a nostalgic show, but you know, then it was like a bit like. But it was the narrative of the time because the 55-year-olds would have remembered their grandparents and some of them would have come from the Haim, whereas we're a bit more bathed in, you know, Israel's GDP excelling after beating Germany's last week uh, per capita in Italy and then Japan, all those little piffling countries. Israel's, you know, stick their heavy metal on. I was trying to look for a punk version of of Hatikva. And thank goodness, because podcast has been uh, an absolute revelation and it's a fantastic medium and it is much more... I mean, if we thought radio was portable, the podcast is even more yeah. portable because every community is a different demography and a different business model. It's a phenomenon, yes. uh, podcasting. I mean, I would just say uh, BBC London, I must say, and Radio London and the BBC and BBC Sounds were wonderful about resurfacing these 50 programmes of. And of course, you did the, the lovely show at the JW3. Which, oh, um, the show about the my show dad. about your father yeah. with, the, with the videos and the TVs yeah, and um, the, the Jewish cookbook of the, uh, of the 1970s, the sort of early feminism of, uh, of the, uh, the lovely, cuddly uh, canadel soup. Um, and there was my dad flirting with the chef. With, with a little whiskey the, in the hand. It was like very parky. Yeah, it was very parky. It was, like parky. It was very magic. 70s. It was absolutely magic. I think there's... And Anglo Jury's very own Blair versus Oasis battle between unholy two Jews on the news and yours truly, Johnny Gould's Jewish state. The show is called Unholy and uh, two Jews in the news. Two Jews on the news, and you know the amazing thing. I've got to share this with you. She and I tend to record at either eleven a.m. or twelve noon on a Thursday morning, 
When do you think you don't have to be Jewish Easter recall? Oh, really? 11 a.m. till 12 there noon on go. Thursday morning. Yeah. And it was, it's, I didn't realise it straight away. We just came to that time. And, the, and I, it's a very lovely way of me feeling as if I'm continuing that little bit of my dad's work. That's, it's lovely. And our Anglo-Jewish story is fascinating because one half of us is from here and the other half is not. The Gould bit of my family is comparatively old. Mm. and was in Birmingham for four generations. Oh, that is old. And uh, I was the fourth uh, person to get married in Singers Hill. The shul is magnificent. It's still magnificent. There's a great rabbi in Robertson keeping oh, it going. Really. So there's still a minion and all that? There's, a, there's more than a minion. It's good. really, it's, it's motoring. Obviously, the community is a lot smaller, but it's, it's absolutely ageless. And it, it speaks of a Birmingham that was the workshop of the world, you know, there's great mosaics there hidden under the carpet, which they pulled up the carpet and repolished it. They've got lottery funding to really build this beautiful shul. And do you make sure you're there for the big hugging and things? I'm a member of a shul in London. I have been for many, many years. And of course, there's a new relationship with the shul because my uh, wife's uh, aunt was the secretary and organiser of the shul for many years. And it was the shul that I... Um, that I did Kaddish for my dad in being in London for so very long, even up to that point. So it's it's my shul now. It's my community, and uh, South Hampstead is a a great uh, it's a great synagogue. It's an amazing thing. I call it the Manchester City of, of, <laughs> of communities because it's got this magnificent stadium. Billions of pounds have been swept on it, and and in the seventies it was earmarked for closure in League One. It's, a, it's just like Man City, really. Long may it continue to be winning. I'm glad it's ta- we've done very well going this long before getting to football. Yeah, well, yes, we we can do that. I think, um, yeah, that's um, impressive. That we've and done so, that. but uh, really, what I wanted to talk about is that your dad was from Luton, wasn't he? Yes, and, and Luton Town in Luton Town, but but also the idea of of him going into newspaper journalism as a as a youngster. Uh, refused to change his name when he got the big yeah. job in London. Yeah. What a hero. Well done. Yeah, he... What a great hero. One, yeah, it's, 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 what name did they want to give him? Well, the, the story was that he was on the Luton News newspaper. And everybody, of course, if you were on a newspaper like that, the big ambition was to get to Fleet Street. And he was desperate to get to Fleet Street. Uh, and a job came up on the Daily Herald. And he always used to say to me, you know, you won't know, think of the Herald then, but for if you were a young, ambitious reporter, that's the kind of paper you wanted to be on. And he went for an interview there and the editor or the news editor, I think, showed him, you know, put a copy of that day's paper on the desk in between them and said, just read out the names as you turn the pages. And he did. And there was a byline for Jeffrey Levy. There was a byline for David Nathan. And there was a byline for Herbert Kretzmer, a lyricist for Les Miserables, but he was a newspaper man. And my dad got up to the third name and then the news editor said, do you see my problem? And he said, yeah, so yeah. if you're happy to be un- right under a different name, you, the job is yours. Take some time to think right. about it. And so my dad always said that he did actually have a pseudonym that he would use very occasionally, not for that reason. But, you know, occasionally if you have too many bylines in one paper, it looks a bit amateur. Yes. So they, he would have a full black name, which was Stephen Reynolds. I can <laughs> now reveal. I don't think I've ever re- re- revealed that anywhere. Um, occasionally when I was at work, my dad would leave a message saying, Stephen Reynolds called... Because he thought it might be embarrassing to say you're okay. Um So I'd always know. And he thought about it, I don't think, for more than a few minutes. And even though he was desperate to get to Fleet Street, he said no, right. that he was not going to change That's his name. He story. felt that was wrong. And therefore, he was on the Luton News for nine years, which for a young, ambitious guy was, was longer than he wanted. And yes. that's because he had held out. But he wasn't off ready when he did make the move. 
He was oh, when he when he, when yeah. he came, he was really ready, and he then went on to the Daily Sketch. Yes. Also, both the Herald and the Sketch no longer exist. It's a, it's a different world. What's also very interesting is that my dad was in his father's and uncle's tailoring chain, which competed with Montague Burton across the Midlands. It was a really big chain. I still have the last sign of the last shop. Uh, what I was going to say about that is that, that when you say the first. I think I think of that in this sense about my dad, which is there were definitely other Jewish journalists, right? There were journalists who were Jews, but they sort of checked their Jewishness at the door. Mm. You know, they weren't, either they changed their names, like we've talked about, or they decided, because I want, I'm ambitious, I'm now not going to write about Jewish things, I'm not going to talk about them. It's as if I've come from nowhere and I would be writing as if I was any other in, in English journalist from the home counties, you know? By doing his radio program, you don't have to be Jewish. My dad was saying no to that. Mm. He was saying, "I'm going to be out as a Jew in the sense that we would now find very normal, but was not common." It's not normal, Johnny. I mean, I I have outed myself with my. But you at the beginning of your career, not so much. No, I was just in sport. Yeah, because I was allowed to be British. Yeah, but I'm not entirely cancelled. No, Um, entirely. For example, I'm very happy to work. Uh, in news agendas, as you are across uh, in on other channels, we are not totally cancelled because we are multi-dimensional people. Yeah, I'm... you can't be cancelled. Actually, you can't be cancelled unless you are a very narrow person. Yeah, you know. I, I think the thing I was going to say is that I think um, this access and insistence on both is really important. And so, my dad wrote, had a whole career writing Hollywood biographies. And show business, and he would do things on Radio 2 about Fred Astaire. But he also, and saw no contradiction, thought it was fine for him to do a Jewish weekly magazine program. What, what's the problem? Why not do both? And I feel that is what I've sort of stayed true to. So I do write a Guardian political column, you know, sort of talk about Brexit or Boris Johnson one minute. But then I do Unholy with Yoni Levy, and we talk about the Jewish things in Israel and all that. And I write Sanborn thriller set in Washington about a Trump like president, perhaps. But also, um, you know, write this book, The Escape Artist, about the first Jew ever to break out of Auschwitz. And I think access to both. You don't have to choose, I'm going to be a British-only journalist, I'm going to be a Jewish-only journalist. I think people like your dad, my dad, they paved the way for a generation that could say, we we, we will want to honour and delve into both aspects of our identity. Because we all like being Jewish, and that's the idea for my podcast as well that it's actually really a very good thing and it's really good fun there's a whole lot of good things going on out there it's such a touching discussion I've really enjoyed it I've so enjoyed much. it too it's lovely talking with you we took advantage didn't we of the fact that we've known each other for so long yeah no um, it's been lovely to do this and thank you very much for giving this book and uh, you know our long history so much time it's been lovely to do it